Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series, The Mysteries of Compassion, today. So turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 to 8, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, We All Need a Foretaste of Glory. Richard Baxter was an English Puritan pastor who lived in the 17th century. His most famous work is a book entitled The Reformed Pastor, and, well, it's it's still a great help to many pastors today. You might remember his very famous words regarding the task of preaching. He wrote, I preached as never sure to preach again, and as a dying man to dying men. You know, Foster's passion for Christ, his stress on the necessity of repentance and living a life worthy of the gospel, I mean, all of these were the hallmarks of the ministry of this godly man. Let me quote to you some of his words that surely give a sense of just the kind of man he was and the kind of ministry that he pursued. He said, and I quote, God has set mankind in such a race where heaven or hell is their certain end that they should not sit down or loiter or run after childish toys of the world, forgetting the prize they should run for. Were it possible for one of us to see this business as the all-seeing God does and see what most men and women in the world are interested in and what they're doing every day, it would be in the saddest sight imaginable. Oh, how we should marvel at their madness and their self-delusion. Now, The reason I'm quoting Baxter is because we've been studying Jesus' call to his disciples. Deny yourselves, he says. Pick up your cross and embrace the reality of suffering. And then follow me. Now, all that's good. However, how does one keep one's eye on the prize in the heat of the battle? Can we keep perspective when we're suffering? So imagine, if you will, a ship headed for land, but it's caught in a fierce storm. And the waves are so high, that's all that anyone can see. You might talk about the wonder of the land where they're going, but the fierce storm eclipses those thoughts as the sailors fight to survive in the storm. And I'm leading up to something. Yeah, we all need a foretaste of the glory to come. It's not enough to say if if we could only see what God sees. I mean, truth be told, we can't see what God sees. And one of the reasons even Christians lose sight of the prize before us, well, it's because for one, it seems so far away. And, And second, the prize comes from a world we haven't yet experienced. But in Romans 8.23, Paul says that believers have been given the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. It means that the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives awakens us to a reality that is yet to come. So here's an example. Years ago, I read about a product that was supposed to help dieters lose weight. And the question was, yeah, but, but what do you do about all those cravings that you get, you know, for apple pie and ice cream and pizza or something that has high calories? Well, it turns out that this company had come up with a spray that you could spray on your tongue, and it tasted just like the ice cream or the pizza that, that you wanted to have. Well, why didn't that product take off? Well, it didn't take off because it never helped anyone lose weight. Because once you got a taste of the food on your tongue, you weren't satisfied. Instead, it awakened a passion forevermore. Now you're going to break into an ice cream store to get some. And that's what a foretaste is. It's a small amount of what is to come and awakens a passion within us. While we are to deny ourselves of the pleasures of this present world, the Lord gives us his spirit to awaken a passion for the world to come. 
In a sense, when we come to Matthew 17, that's, that's exactly what's going on. Jesus has told his disciples that he was going to Jerusalem to die, and he's told them to expect suffering in their mission. So here now I'm reading Matthew 17, 1 to 3. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Now, it was just six days after Jesus had spoken to his disciples about his death, and now he had taken the leaders among the disciples, Peter, James, and John, and they had gone up a high mountain. We're not told where, but just that the mountain was high. And to be clear, what happened there is something they never forgot. Years later, Peter was still talking about it, and he was still writing about it. You know, 2 Peter 1, 16 to 18, listen to what Peter says. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. You know, that one event, and we call it the transfiguration, that had an incredible impact on Peter. And I have no doubt, when things got especially tough, his mind always went back there. It was that foretaste of what he was waiting for when he got to heaven. And even when the waves were so high around him that he couldn't see what was happening, he remembered that one moment. So what did happen on the mountain? Well, we're told that as they went up the mountain, Jesus was transfigured. And the Greek word Matthew has chosen for us means that he was transformed or that he was changed in form. We might think of Jesus' earthly ministry. Uh, Jesus in his earthly ministry was veiled in flesh, but here the veil is taken away. So right here, they're seeing Jesus in the glory that he had before he became a man. The inner reality of what he had been from all of eternity was right then on full display. Matthew tells us that his clothing began to change. You know, for those of you who know your Bible well, you might think of Moses coming down from the mountain, and after he had spoken with God, the Bible tells us that his face was shining with the afterglow of the glory of God. Is that what Jesus was experiencing? Look what Matthew describes for us. He says his clothing is white, but it's as white as light. It's supposed to remind us of Daniel 7 verse 9. See, that passage says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. And then if you go just a few verses later, verse 13, we read, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days. Now, If you've been following this series, you're going to remember that just six days prior, Jesus had asked his disciples, who do men say the Son of Man is? Well, Jesus is the Son of Man. And Peter had responded, I know who the Son of Man is. You are the Son of Man, and you're the Messiah. You're the Son of the living God. You see, Peter knew it, but he had not yet seen how glorious that truth was. But now he's looking at it. And furthermore, we're told that the face of Jesus is shining like the sun. Yet that is different than Moses. We know that much later, after Jesus had been raised from the dead and after he'd gone to heaven, 
And after the disciples had performed their ministry and after they had all died, only one is left, it's John. He's then exiled on the island of Patmos. And then as an old man, he served Jesus faithfully for a lifetime. And then he hears a sound behind him and he turns and sees the resurrected Jesus. Among the descriptions of what John sees, in Revelation 1 verse 16, he says, his face is shining like the sun. See, I think that's the point here. It's not that the glory of God shines onto Jesus or is reflected in or through Jesus. I mean, think of it this way. In the night, when you look up at the moon, what is it that you see? And the answer is, you see reflected light. You're not looking at the source of the light, but as a reflection of it. But when you look at the sun, you look at the very light itself. And that's exactly what's being described. The disciples are seeing the source of light, Jesus, very God of very God, his face shining like the sun. He is clothed in light. No doubt the disciples now hide their faces. And you have to wonder what they're thinking. All this time, did they ever understand who it is that they were hanging out with? And then suddenly, he's not alone. He's talking with two men, Moses and Elijah. Matthew said it happened quite suddenly, all of a sudden. And how this happened, we don't know, but suddenly he's with Moses and Elijah. And again, we're left with somewhat of a mystery because we don't actually know how the disciples knew they were Moses and Elijah. I mean, do they have name tags on? I, I, I doubt that. Did the father announce it? Well, perhaps, but you know, we're not told that's what happened. I mean, it might be that Jesus called the two men by their names and the disciples heard it. But why Moses and Elijah? Why not Abraham or David or even John the Baptist who had recently been put to death? I mean, of all the people that are mentioned in the First Testament at this moment when Jesus is displaying his splendor to Peter, James, and John, why is it that these two men suddenly show up? Well, clearly it's, it's all for the benefit of Peter, James, and John. What is this foretaste of glory that they're seeing? And what can we who read about this later, what what are we to learn from this? There's so much more to see. Imagine walking the very streets that Jesus walked or placing your foot into the Sea of Galilee. If experiencing the very places Jesus, Paul, David, and so many others lived and taught is something you've always wanted to do, then make plans to join Back to the Bible Canada for our 2021 Israel Experience. Consider this your personal invitation to join Bible teacher Dr. John Neufeld, Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, and very special musical guests, along with the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team for a trip of a lifetime, April 11th to the 19th, 2021. Experience the sights, sounds, history, and culture of Israel, making the Bible come alive. And for those who'd like to extend their experience, we're also offering a Jordan extension. So to learn more or to register today, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca. I'm going to make a statement about why Moses and Elijah appeared talking with Jesus. Are you ready? Moses and Elijah are there to show the three disciples all the necessary conditions for the coming of the Messiah have been fulfilled. 
All of Scripture is right on track, and you disciples are a part of the fulfillment of God's eternal plan. So think first of Moses. Here I'm reading Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 19. The passage has Moses, who's then an old man, and he's preaching to all the people of Israel. And Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb, on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Translation all that? Listen. The prophecy that Moses gave goes like this. When God spoke to all Israel at Mount Sinai, it so terrified the people of Israel that they thought, if God ever speaks to us again, we're all going to die. And then God, out of concern for his people, makes a promise to them. In the future, God is going to raise up a man, and he is going to speak for God. You wouldn't need a voice from Mount Sinai in that day. The voice of that prophet would be exactly the same as if God spoke directly from Sinai. And that's why Moses is there. His presence testifies that Jesus is that voice from God. When he speaks, it's like God is speaking from Sinai. Well, how about Elijah? Again, we go back to the First Testament, and this time to the very last book. It's the book of Malachi, and the very last chapter of the very last book in the First Testament, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So these two men, the first announcing that it is so terrifying to hear the words of God directly that God will send a man who will speak with the authority of God. The second, Elijah comes with a promise that shows us that when we were at the end of the age, Elijah shall appear, and then the Messiah will come. And now here they are. And I'm reading Matthew 17, verse 4. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, the word translated as tent, well, it could also be translated as tabernacle. And we might think about the tabernacle that Moses built in the wilderness. It was a place of worship. And so, is Peter suggesting that they need to find an altar of worship in this amazing place? I mean, maybe Peter wants to worship Jesus and Moses and Elijah. Yeah, perhaps, but, but probably not. See, Peter hadn't thought anything through clearly. He's just mumbling something about tents. Matthew actually makes no comment about Peter's request. It's a strange request, but, but Mark, in his account, adds something. Remember that the book of Mark was written by Mark, but it was written under the guidance of Peter. And so Mark 9 verse 6 says of Peter, For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. I think that's Peter's comments about how he felt. He's simply mixed up. He's talking, but he's not thinking, but he's frightened. And so with jumbled thoughts, not knowing how to process what he's seeing, Peter is speaking. But there's something here in, in Peter's suggestion that if you think about it, it's actually a horrible thing to say. I mean, suggestion that they make three tenths seems to indicate that Peter wants to give equal glory 
to Jesus, to Moses, and to Elijah. But listen, just six days ago, when Jesus was asking his disciples what people were saying about him, remember he said, who do men say that I am? And some of them said, well, you know, we hear people saying you're Elijah or one of the prophets. But that's wrong. Jesus is so much greater than Elijah. And and the suggestion of three equal tens for these three men, it, it, it sounds confused. It sounds like Peter hasn't learned a thing. All three of you guys need a tent. It's, it's a dumb thing to say. And then we come to the next event, Matthew 17, verse 5. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Well, now that clarifies things. I don't know if the cloud of light overshadowed only the three, that is, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, or whether it overshadowed the disciples as well. I mean, we're not told, but it is possible that the disciples found themselves covered by a cloud of light, and then in the middle of that incredible brightness, they hear the voice of the Father. I mean, we should remember that in the book of Matthew, Matthew actually only records two occasions in which the Father speaks. And on both of those occasions, at the baptism of Jesus, and then right here, he says exactly the same thing. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Both times the Father speaks, he expresses delight in the Son. And furthermore, those words are an allusion to Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. That's to say, Peter, look, don't you get confused about building an equal shelter for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. No, no, no. This one, Jesus alone is my son. He alone is the full object of my delight. He alone has no sin. There is in him no stain of unrighteousness. He is in a category by himself. So let's continue to read verses 6 to 8. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Ah, The vision's done. The entire vision had left them terrified, and, and really, why shouldn't it? When Isaiah says that he saw the Lord in the temple, all he could do was cry out that he was undone. He was a man of unclean lips, and he was terrified he had seen the Lord of glory. And indeed, later in John chapter 12, John tells us that what Isaiah saw in the temple on that day was Jesus in all his glory. And that's exactly what these three men had seen. They had seen the same vision that Isaiah had seen. And that leaves us with questions. I mean, why did this happen? So let me give an illustration, and it comes from my own experience, and I don't mean to insinuate that I've ever seen Jesus. Look, I haven't. But I have an experience that's different from the disciples, but I hope you're going to see where I'm going with this. Years ago, just before I went through a very difficult experience of suffering, it involved merciless criticism. Something had happened. I had no idea the severe criticism was coming. Kathy and I were on vacation. And it was Sunday, and we had found a place to go to church. And just before the pastor got up to speak, I thought I heard God speaking in my spirit. Look, I almost never say I heard God speak to me, and I don't like it much when people say that kind of thing flippantly. But this was such a powerful experience. I heard God saying that he had brought me to this church just so that I would have the chance to hear what this pastor had to say. 
I was to listen closely because what he had to say was to be applied to my own life. It was so clear, and it it was unsettling. I was trembling there in the church. And then the pastor got up and began to preach, and I remember his text, John 15, verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And then that pastor spoke about how pruning always involves pain. But God would take a fruitful life and make it even more fruitful through the valley of suffering. And in those difficult days ahead, I remembered that encounter. It was God's voice saying, look, this isn't happening because you've sinned. It's happening so that I might increase your usefulness. Now, why do I use that example? I use it because the disciples were going to see Jesus persecuted, then slandered, then arrested in the middle of the night, then put before an illegal court and then condemned to die, then nailed to a cross while men shouted insults into his ears. Do you think that the transfiguration of Jesus mattered in a time like that? Oh, yes, it did. And here's our point of application. Our Heavenly Father knows that following Jesus always comes at a great cost. And when we're called upon to pay a price, then know for certain that our God will provide for us all the foretaste of glory that we need to sustain us in the dark hours that come. He will always give us enough of a foretaste that we will long for the kingdom of heaven and that we will have strength to make it through the hour of trial. John, you know, I I think about this message and I think how critical it is, that foretaste of glory. You know, in my own life, I've had people come to me and say, you know, how can you depend upon the faithfulness of God? And I say, you know, one of the things that I do is I look back on my experience of his faithfulness. Is this what this is talking about? Yeah, I, I am sure, Ben, that every single believer can look back at a time when it seems like heaven entered into the room. And I would, you know, invite believers to remember those moments when God was especially gracious and gave you that sense already. I don't know how that happened in your life, but I'm going to say if you've walked with Christ for some time, there are moments that you can think about the faithfulness of God, his overwhelming mercy. So we have to remember in the deep, dark valleys what God has communicated to us when we were on the mountain. And uh, it's important to to sit back and remember. Thanks, John, so much. And Remember to join us as we continue this series, The Mysteries of Compassion, right here on Back of the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Truth in Life Today has been a wonderful journey of ministry. So many thoughtful, insightful guests shedding light on challenging topics of Christian life. While now in 2020, We look forward to continuing Truth in Life today, but with a renewed purpose. This year, Truth in Life today is becoming more personal, more interactive. Truth in Life today videos, both archived and current, will be easily accessible through our Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel or at truthinlifetoday.com. How is it more personal, more interactive? Well, each episode will be designed around your personal Bible study or small group study with Dr. John Newfeld leading the way. And every episode will provide you with study notes available through truthandlifetoday.com. So join us as we launch a new generation of Truth and Life Today. For more information or to support this ministry, 
Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca.